Now, I read an article uh, in CTM um, a couple of years ago that made an argument that everyone has a belief system. And this belief system drives how we behave in practice. Now, you may be a, a vegan, perhaps that's your belief system. <laughs> uh, we found that it's a belief system, now veganism. Now, everyone has that belief system. Uh, and the article goes on to say, our beliefs are like a Windows operating system on a computer or a laptop, we might say. And this operating system is hidden in the background. But it is that system that enables us to do everything else on the computer. Microsoft Word, surf the internet, play games. I think people nowadays don't use these sort of computers. They tend to use tablets. So it might be like an operating system, an iOS on your, um, on your on an iPhone or an Android sort of system. Uh, but it's operating in the background. It's enabling you to check email and all these sorts of things. Now, we only realize how important the operating system is when the laptop or the phone gets infected with some virus or perhaps you haven't made a certain update to it and all of a sudden it's beginning to misbehave. Um, otherwise, we never really notice it. Uh, we just get on with the phone. We don't even think of... You're not picking up your phone and saying, Android, how are you? you know, you're just using it and enjoying it. You're not worried about the operating system. But it is important and we notice it when something goes wrong with the phone. Well, by the end of this message, I want you to answer this question for yourself, especially at the start of the year. What is your operating system? I don't mean the one on your laptop or on your iPhone. I mean the one living inside of you. What core belief drives everything you do? If we looked at your life, what would we conclude is the core belief that drives everything? That is your operating system. And I want you to think about that in the context of the passage we are looking at in Mark. As you know, we are resuming our, our, our exploration of Mark. We've been going through Mark, the book of Mark verse by verse. And we are resuming, looking at this uh, gospel of Mark. It's one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And just to remind you that Mark is writing this gospel account uh, for followers of Jesus facing great persecution uh, in Rome. And I think if we went to these believers and we asked them a question, what is your operating system? Um, they would immediately answer that their operating system is Jesus Christ. And they mean it. That is the core belief. That is who drives everything they do. And we know that because many of them are living underground, fearing for their lives. They have lost friends. They have lost businesses. Why have they done this? It's just because they like danger. No, no, no. They've done this because they believe in Jesus. And their faith in Jesus is literally driving them into the mouths of lions. They are being set on fire as human torches because of this operating system they, they believe in. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who drives them in everything they do. Now, there must be still some among them that are wondering. In the midst of so much suffering, you know, suffering makes you question a lot of things in your life. And there must be among them who are, still, who are, who are beginning to wonder, is Jesus still worth dying for? 
Do we really have the right operating system? They're trusting in him. They, they will think to them, so we believe Jesus is, is the Christ, so why are we then struggling like this? Jesus, where are you in the midst of such suffering? Should we find a new operating system? Perhaps they're being tempted. Well, Mark is there, you see, and he's taken down, he's written this gospel to remind them that, no, you've got the right operating system. Jesus is still worth dying for because of who he is. He's still worth living for. And the gospel of Mark begins with, if you just looked at the gospel of Mark, the first verse in chapter 1, verse 1, it reminds us, it's a, it, it, that's a headline for, the, for, the, for Mark. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or God the Son. And Mark wants to declare to them that Jesus is God coming to reign as king. He is God the Son coming to reign. And as we've been going through Mark, you remember Mark is divided in three books, in three parts, we might say. Mark chapter 1 to 8 is, tells us about the ministry of Jesus in the province of Galilee. We spent quite some time looking at that. Mark chapter 8 to verse 10 covers a journey to Jerusalem. We looked at that. We were there on the way to Jerusalem. And then Jesus enters Jerusalem, isn't it? From Mark chapter 11 to 16, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And all of these events take place over a single week. This is the final week of Jesus' life. It's amazing, isn't it? A large chunk of the book is taken up with that final week. It's very important. And we are in the final section. We are in chapter 12 of Mark. Do you remember what day it is? Where we left it? What day of the week we are in Jerusalem? Right? That's, a, that's interesting. I'll spare you. We are on Tuesday. It is Tuesday. And the clock is ticking on the life of Jesus. And you remember that the whole day, Jesus has been taking a barrage of questions from religious mafia. They have come, they've asked him, what, you know, who, who should we pay taxes to, Caesar or you? you know? And the, 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 oh, the Sadducees, you might remember that they asked, you know, is, is there sex in heaven, I guess is a summary of the question they asked. Uh, and we had a good uh, discussion around that question they, 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 were, they, they were asking. And remember, this, the last time a man comes to Jesus and says, you know, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered that scribe. That's what he just done. And so he's been taking all of these questions from them, uh, and, and now he's exhausted them. Now it's Jesus' turn, after a barrage of questions, to pose his own question. So let's turn to Mark 12, verse 35. To verse 37. Let's just read that, that, that. What happens here? And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, King David, calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus has that effect, isn't it? When he's preaching, everybody's just glad and excited for now. They won't be excited in a few days' time. They will be trying to put him to death. Now, now to be sure, what's going on here is that Jesus' question, which is recorded by Mark here, is actually a follow-up question. 
Because the start of the discussion is given to us in Matthew 22, verse 41 to verse, to, to verse 44. But just reading the first two verses of Matthew 22, verse 41. You don't have to turn there, but feel free to do that. It's just the book before that. Matthew 22, verse 41 to 42 says this. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, the scribes performed the function, if you like. They're among the Pharisees. They're the experts of the law among the Pharisees. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So that's how the conversation starts off. But because Mark likes to summarize, he just picks off from verse 35. Let's go back to Mark. Then Jesus asked that question, isn't it? After they've said the son of David, Jesus then, I think, turns to the crowd and poses the question to everyone present. So they've given an answer and then he's almost turning around and saying, ah, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord, in, that is Yahweh in capital letters, if you read Psalm 110 verse 11, Psalm 110 verse 1, said to my Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your, ne- your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? He posed that question to the crowd and to the scribes. Now, the question from Jesus is intended to teach us two reasons here why Jesus is the only operating system we need in our lives. And there are two reasons. I just want to give you there in front of your outline. The first reason is that Jesus is God living among us. Jesus is God himself, the creator of the universe, living among us. Now, we have just spent all of December here in this truth. And you're like, we had all of this in December, right? Well, we are hearing it again because this truth is actually at the heart of the whole Bible. You can't miss it. And it's especially here in these verses we've just read. The Lord said to my Lord, verse 36, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, to understand Jesus' question, we need some background information to understand this. What are you talking about? In the Old Testament, God promised Israel that he would send them a king. Okay? And God's chosen king, um, the Messiah, or the Christ, he would come and serve his people Israel, defeat all their enemies, and establish a new kingdom of righteousness of which any people who trust in him would find citizenship in that kingdom. Now this king will be a son or a descendant of the great king of Israel. The great king David who ruled Israel a thousand years before Jesus Christ. That is God's promise uh, in the Bible. God promised David in 2 Samuel uh, verse 7 to 1 to 7. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, sorry, verse 1 to 7, that one of the descendants 
will sit on the throne of David uh, and rule forever. Uh, Israel will never lack a king, we are taught in, in, in 1 Kings. And the religious experts, the scribes, have studied their Bibles. Uh, they've been coming to Bible study. And <laughs> they have opened the scriptures. And they believe that God's king, the Christ, will be a human descendant of King David. Jesus has also been reading his Bible. He's been doing, I guess, his morning devotions. And he believes all of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is inspired by God, as he tells us there in verse 35. Verse 36. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's come across a passage. He's, he's been reading and he's read Psalm 110, verse 1. And Jesus quotes that, that, that verse here. And he doesn't think the scribes have been explaining that passage very well. The question there, isn't it? How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus asked, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? He doesn't think they have an answer to that question. Is he his human descendant or is he something else? The point here is that David, who lived a thousand years before Christ, notice, spoke of him in present tense. The Lord said to my Lord. David calls him my Lord a thousand years ago, before Christ. So the question our Lord Jesus is asking, how can this person who is David's Lord also be his descendant who lives afterwards? Now, Jesus is not denying that the Christ is a descendant of King David. He just wants the experts to reconcile the two seemingly impossible truths. How do these two truths sit together? And the religious experts, they're hearing Jesus and they're stunned. They're silent from him. We never hear from them. In fact, Matthew tells us after this, they don't even want to ask him any more questions. It seems they have been skipping that part of the Bible. It's a bit like the passages we've been looking at during the week uh, on the fallen angels. Uh, it's too difficult. Let's just skip that one a bit over, shall we? And I think that's what they've been perhaps doing. Or maybe the penny has finally dropped. That's why they're silent. It should drop as Jesus speaks because the answer to Jesus' question is the question itself. Look at the question again. That's why we keep reading it. Look at the question. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord, capital letters, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If they are listening to Jesus' question and his quote from the Old Testament, they will realize here, first of all, that David's Lord existed before King David because he is God. Why do I say that in this question? Because God cannot share his power with anyone else. He just told this Lord to say, sit at my right hand, be my equal, share my glory, honor, and power. God shares no glory with anyone. The scribes know that. So they should immediately realize that whatever we make of this situation, he, the, the Christ, devil's Lord, is fully God. 
And of course the Bible tells us elsewhere that he's fully man. Therefore what Mark is saying is that the Christ is fully God and fully man. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Mark has recorded. Mark therefore is telling us the full identity of Jesus who Peter, remember, has already confessed as the Christ in Mark 9 is that Jesus is God living among us. And so Jesus is telling the scribes here, I am David's greatest son. I am God living among you. And you must look to me for salvation. I must be your operating system in life. Now, a couple of years ago, um, a rediscovered painting by Leonardo da Vinci was sold for nearly half a billion dollars because it depicted the first of Jesus. Now, of course, the first of Jesus on there is not real, right? But any first of Jesus plus the talent of Leonardo da Vinci equals money, right? Because why? Because Jesus is the most famous person in history. More artworks, songs, books, movies have been done about Jesus than anyone else in human history. There's been no army or person or idea that has changed history as Jesus has done. You don't have to be a Christian to admit that. Everyone knows there's something unique about Jesus. The question is, what is unique about Jesus? Everyone knows there's something unique about him. That's why from the Simpsons and, and South Park to Freemasons and, and, and Jehovah's Witnesses, they all claim Jesus in some way. Everyone has their vision of Christ. Why? Because this is the most important person who has ever walked the face of the planet. They all have their vision of Jesus. But the Bible is telling us that it is the only authority on Jesus. Yes, it's great you and I have our own ideas about Jesus. But what does the Bible say Jesus is? What is unique about him according to the Bible? Well, what is unique about him is what Jesus says about himself. He is God among us. He is fully God and fully man. I just want to ask you at the start of the year today, do you believe this truth? I am not asking you whether you think it makes intellectual sense. It does. <coughs> I'll spare you that. I'm not asking you whether Jesus is unique. He's unique. You believe that you, 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 may, you may even believe, as I've said, that Jesus is God the Son. I'm not asking whether you actually believe what, that, the word itself, the, 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 the truth itself. What I'm asking is, have you surrendered to Christ as your God and King? God has entered this sin-stained world for you. He's laid down his life for your sin. He's done that to bring you to himself so that you can be a citizen. Have you surrendered to him? The reason he came was to change your operating system. Before your operating system used to run on rebellion, sin. That was your software. That was your spiritual software. Jesus has come to replace that sinful software. He's come to download a new program of himself into your life. He has come to make you born again. Are you born again? Is your operating system, Holy Spirit, empowered? Do you have a new life 
in Christ. You, you need to ask this question. No matter what's going on in your life, this is the most important question. As you begin the year, you have to ask yourself this question. I'm not asking, are you a member or are you baptized? It's great to be baptized. I'm asking, are you born again? Do you have new life? Has change happened in your life? You know, when we change operating system, there are differences in the way devices run. One which runs on Android runs differently from an iOS. Can we look at your life and say you are running on a Jesus operating system? You are, I think all of us have to ask ourselves this question. That yeah, the new year is the best way for us to start with this question. Am I truly born again? Have I truly repented of my sin? And ask Jesus to forgive my sin. Based on his death on the cross for me. As God performed a second genesis. Have I been born again? Can I say that not only do I believe that Jesus is indeed God living among us. He is my God living in my heart. If the answer, the honest answer is no. At the beginning of the year is a great time. It's always a great time to turn to Christ. But what a wonderful thing to know that you can come before God and genuinely repent today and live the rest of your life knowing that Jesus is now the meaning and purpose and new life for you. That you are now a citizen of the kingdom. I encourage you to, to ensure that you do this uh, this very morning. You need to do that uh, because... Until you surrender to Jesus, you cannot benefit from what, what I'm about to say. The second truth of this passage. Only those who are truly born again can benefit from the second reason why Jesus must be your operating system. The first truth is that Jesus is God living among us. The second truth Jesus shows us here is that Jesus is God exalted for us. Jesus is God exalted for us. Briefly, the question that Jesus has asked here does not just reveal that Christ is God living among us. It also reveals what he has come to do. Let's look at verse 36. There is so much here. We're only going to just briefly glance at it. Look at verse 36. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. What does he mean? What, is, what, is, what, is, what does God here mean? What does God the Father mean when he speaks to God the Son? Sit at my right hand. Well, God has no right hand. <laughs> uh, God is spirit, of course, isn't it? So the right hand is not a physical place, right? It is a metaphor of place of power, prestige, and glory. Uh, how do I know that? Well, Exodus 15, verse 6, might help you if you want to glance at that if you have time. Exodus 15, verse 6 says this, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So the right hand is a place of power. Psalm 16, verse 11 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
So to be at the right hand is a place of honor. It's to be desired to be loved by the Lord himself. Psalm 89 verse 13 says this. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. It's a place of authority. It's a place of power. You know, this verse there, when Jesus, when, when, when Jesus here quotes David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This verse is telling us that God the Son put on human flesh in order to be exalted by God the Father into a position of unrivaled transcendency. And notice that God here tells Christ, because this is God the Father speaking to Christ. He tells Christ, what does he tell Christ? He tells Christ to sit. This, this is, is, is meant to indicate that after Christ has finished the work on the cross, ascended to heaven, is now sitting in triumph and ruling. King David is a prophet in, in this sense. He's looking forward in time and he sees his Lord, Christ, born of human flesh, now sitting in the chair of the ancient of days. Christ is now exalted. For the first time, our skin rubs against the throne of heaven. That's the vision David has here. Now, I want you to note something carefully here. This is important. Everything I've said is important, but this is very important, right? But I'm going to say that later probably, right? Christ is not exalted here because he is God the Son. He has always been exalted as God the Son. His glory has and always be like that. He's God. He's always been at the right, the, at the right hand of the Father. That's the first thing you need to note. Secondly, Christ is not being exalted here because he is a man. Human beings are not equal to God to enjoy such God. Honor and power. God will share no glory with no man. No. This brings us to the third critical thing you need to note here. Christ is being exalted because he is God robbed in flesh. This exaltation is for the one who is God, but on behalf of those who now belong to him. He is being exalted in his capacity as the mediator, the one who stands between God and man. This exhortation is God the creator sitting as the king of his people, as the greater David, as the king of his new people of God, served by faith in him. This is what Mark is telling us that Jesus has come to do. Now, at this point, the crowds do not really understand what Jesus is saying, right? But by the end of Mark, we'll see soon, right? We'll get to the end of Mark. We'll see Jesus, God the Son, walk the road to Golgotha, carrying that ragged cross, and he would die there on the cross as one of us and for us. There on that Roman cross, the God who created humanity will be killed by his own children, the children he created. Christ will willingly bleed and die to pay the penalty that you and I deserve 
on the cross. And then God the Father will raise him from the dead so that anyone who trusts in Jesus could have new life. The resurrection is important because it is the means through which we have new life now. We receive that new operating system. And when Christ is risen, he will ascend into heaven. He ascended into heaven. Why did he ascend into heaven? So that all who are joined to Christ can now enter the throne room of heaven. And through our faith in Christ, as he enters that throne room of heaven, we now share in the glory, power, and honor that God the Father has bestowed on God the Son, Christ our King. So Jesus now is ruling and reigning in heaven, and even though we are on earth, if we are in Christ, we are mysteriously reigning with him. So Paul can say in Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 7, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and did what? and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, when Christ returns, he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us who believe in Jesus. Us in Christ Jesus. This is what Mark wants all of us to understand. It's a wonderful encouragement to Christians going through persecution at this time. It's a, that's why Mark has written this to them. He's saying to them, regardless of what's going on in your life, if you're truly trusting in Christ, no matter your situation, Christ is God exalted for you. You see, there is woven within all human beings a desire for glory. The religious experts here lived to see the day when the glory of Israel would be restored. But all of us here long to be great again, so to speak. And this is what we long just for glory in our lives. I don't know if you, if you, if you, if you, if you followed the publication of the honors, the New Year honors list. I was amazed that very rich people who have everything in their lives were so excited about being named on the list. What's going on there? You think they have it all, but why do they want to be on the list? Because it's glory, you see. We are all glory hunters. And this has been hardwired in all of us. It's not a simple thing to long for glory. God created us with that desire to be significant, to be honored, to be praised. This is why wives want to be praised by their husbands, isn't it? Right? This is why you want the government to say, well done, right? We like to be appreciated. We, it's, it's wired in us. But we rebelled against God. And, and so all of us now are searching for exhortation in many things. Because you see, God created us to find that glory not in things, but in God. We were made to find glory in Him. But we rebelled against Him, so we now live looking for glory and significance in other things. And Mark is saying, no, 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 no. Jesus has come to plague us to 
that glory we lost. So that we can enjoy the greatness in God that we long for. Jesus is God exalted for us. And this passage is a comfort and a challenge for these readers in Mark. It's a comfort and a challenge to all of us here if we're trusting in Jesus. It's a comfort because through Christ, you who trust in Christ now share in the glory of Christ because he has entered heaven for us. That's a comfort. Now, hearing this truth is easy, I know, right? But living by it is difficult. It is hard to believe that you share in the exaltation of Christ when you're struggling with an illness. You can hear it like this. But you're going through depression, you're going through physical challenges, other physical health issues. This world seems a bit removed from your realities. So it's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe you're sat in the heavenly places with Jesus when you're praying for God to give you work and it is not happening. If I'm really sat there with Christ, how come Christ, my prayers are not being blocked that they have immediate access because Christ is in the throne room of heaven. How come I don't have this, what I'm praying for? So it is hard to believe that, isn't it? It is hard to believe that you are with Christ in, the, in, in that throne room of heaven when your prayers for your family seems to be not answered as you wish. But this passage is telling us, it's inspired by the Spirit of God, and Jesus himself is telling you, I have not risen from the dead alone. I have not ascended into heaven alone. I am not sat in glory alone. No, he's saying to us, he really rose, he really ascended, and he's really sat as your Christ, as the husband of his bride, the church. He has taken you with him into glory. As one writer puts it, Christ took with him into glory all his people upon his breast so that we are as secure as he is in the heavenly places. So the question for you and I is, whose report are we going to believe in 2020? The report of our feelings and our situations that constantly change, or the eternal word of Christ that says, you are sat with me in the heavenly places. I'm with Christ. I'll believe his word. And I want you to imagine with me, if you truly believe that you are in Christ and your Christ is God exalted for you, how would your life look like in 2020? How would your family life look like in 2020? How would your relationships look like in 2020? How would your church life look like 2020? If you really believe this truth. I think, first of all, it would mean an end to glory hunting in 2020. As I said, all of us here are searching for glory in many things. Some of you have started 2020 seeking glory with more money. That's your priority. That's the issue on your mind. Some of you are searching for glory, looking for a better family, a better church. We'll be discussing church later. A better, better beauty. But this passage says, no, no, no. It's not just that you're searching for love in the wrong places. You're searching for meaning, glory, the essence of existence in the wrong places. If you are in Christ, you already have it all. 
Stop hunting for the for glory in things that are passing away. In things that are being shaken. You have true glory in Christ forever. I think if we believe this passage, it would therefore mean growing in denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following him. If we believe we are running on the Jesus operating system and he is God exalted for us, Jesus will come first in 2020. Why? Because he left the glories of heaven for me so that I can live for him. Oh, such a savior who loves me so much, gave his life for me, deserves my life, my all. If I truly believe this truth, it will lead me to want to know this Jesus more. To work for his church more. To work for his glory more. Because I'm just returning all the glory he's given me. And so if you're trusting in Jesus as God living among us and exalted for us, Trust, if he is your operating system, start this year in worship of him. And if you're trusting in Jesus, this should give you confidence that no matter where you are, challenges you are facing in your life. Well, as that hymn says, isn't it? He will hold you fast because you're already secure and firm in the throne room of heaven. Where it is the safest place to be in existence? What is the most safe place to be? Is it not in that throne room heaven? Is it not in that place sat at God's right hand? Surely that's our comfort, isn't it? So thank God for not only coming from heaven for you, but taking you into heaven and you being exalted with Christ. And ask him to help you believe this truth. Ask him to help you to keep running on his operating system and nothing else. Amen.